Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R yet again. We have an hour of science for you in my virtual studio. And in fact, not far from me in one of the other studios is uh, Dr. Jen. Good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. It's pretty delightful to be back at Triple R, even if I can't be in the same room as you. I know. It's cool. It's weird, but it's cool because I can kind of almost see out your window to where I'm sitting, which is a bit freaky. We've also got Chris KP. I don't know where you are, buddy. Further away I'm a better. long way from your studio, and, and <laughs> it's, it's a blessing from both of us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. It's been a, a very big week in science with some uh, a lot of different things coming out. This is our second last show for the year, folks. Uh, we're going a lot longer this year. We felt, as uh, is the team from Eat It, that both of our industries have been pretty hard hit this year. So we're going to keep broadcasting a lot longer and have a much shorter break over the summer than we would normally have to give you uh, a lot of extra science this year, which is, um, yeah, something we enjoy. We're going to start off with some news, and I realize I'm uh, potentially putting him on the spot here, but Chris KP, why don't you go first? Mm. What news story would you like to do today, Chris? I, I'd like to do quite a number of things, um, but in the in the spirit of uh, the team, I'll do one particular thing. Uh, and, and you know, I, I almost don't want to do this because I'm frightened that, you know, people might start getting an idea about me that uh, over over months and years would be an understandable conclusion, but it's not true. Um, and that is that I have some kind of unusual uh, interest in fecal matter. But it, I've got a poo story, uh, and but it's a good poo story. And let me just take you backwards a bit to a previous story I did this year about murder hornets invading North America. These are you know, large hornets that attack bees is the horrible long story cut short. Um, what they found is that when these, they tend to attack individual bees, so it's a really, you know, sort of dogfight situation until they get towards the end of the breeding season and then they just go all out, we've got mouths to feed, get in there, destroy the hive. Um, and there's a number of defences that the bees have to protect themselves. When it's an individual attack, they, they're very good at flying. Like They're actually just very good at running away, <laughs> um, which is what works. Um, if that doesn't work, they can also wave their backsides in a reasonably threatening manner, which sounds cute. Um, a bee wiggling its butt at you sounds cute, but if you're a human, right? If you are a hornet, that means a totally different thing. Um, they can, if they, if they're invaded uh, badly enough, like close enough to the hive, they can in fact surround the the hornet in a sort of a ball of other bees, which they can eventually just suffocate the uh, the hornet or just overheat it to the point where it, it dies. Um, uh, but they've recently discovered a whole new technique, and this is basically putting little dots of other animals' poo around the entrance of the beehive. Now, consider what bees do. Bees, their entire existence is based on, on plant matter. They eat it. They uh, they use it for various other things. They don't actually, you know, have anything to do with, you know, mammalian or bird poo, um, except for this one thing. So they gather it, put little dots around the entrance of the hive. Uh, and in a, in a recent study, uh, they found that 94% of 67 hives, that's quite a lot of hives, um, had some kind of poo dotted around the entrance. Um, and what this did, or what it appeared to do, is it meant that the number of times they were visited by a hornet was a lot less for a start, and they basically never got the hive decimated by hornets if they had 
tour around the entrance, uh, as most of them did, um, which is great, right? Because it means this is a specific t- uh, specific activity. This is not we accidentally had some crack on our feet and wiped it on the door on the way in. Like they went out of their way to get some chicken or cow or horse poo, put it around the entrance, and it seems to work, which is interesting. What is unknown at this point, and therefore even more interesting, is why it does what it does. So we don't know whether this is because the hornets are just going, oh, gross, um, you know, or whether they don't like the texture or the smell or there's some other component to the poo that is just not very pleasant, or whether it just disturbs or masks the chemical signals that the hornets use because they will actually fly around and mark the entrance to a hive or a tree nearby so that their nestmates go, yep, yeah, I know where to go for a quick feed. Um, when the time's right. So maybe it's just a matter of we'll smear some turd on the doorway and no one will be able to smell the odour hornet that had previously been placed there. Anyway, but there you go. So poo to the rescue yet again, this time for Asian honeybees. Chris, I think with regards to the idea that people think you only do poo stories and have some sort of fascination with that, I mean, <laughs> yes. I and, and that people may change their mind on that. I, I want to use a pun here, but I'm not going to because I don't want to swear in there, but I would say <laughs> that the ship has sailed on, on that one for you. <laughs> People can, it may well have. People can and make I'll, the change. I will wear the badge with pride. I think the I'm difference, just, yeah, it's basically either poo stories or chicken butts with you. Um, I think we've, and they're closely related. They're very closely, closely related. Chris, <laughs> so I'm just hoping that you're uh, not going to start rubbing animal fecal matter on your front doorstep to deter others from coming in your own home. Well, you know, just want to just a warning out there. It's a little bit late in the year now, but uh, <laughs> next time you want to get trick or treating, be very careful. <laughs> be very careful. <laughs> oh boy, uh, Dr. Jen, save us, please. Oh, look, I'd be very happy to save us from that one. So I want everyone just to stop for a second. <laughs> Uh, look around you and have a, a get a bit of an idea of how many human-made things you can see. So, you know, I can see a computer, a phone, some microphones, a whole lot of thing, things around me that are human-made. And this week in nature, we reached a whole new milestone in the dominance of humans on our planet because human-made objects now outweigh all of the living things on Earth. Oh, my God. That, can I just say, Jen, so you just, you needed to clarify there because when you said that Chris was thinking about something else human made. <laughs> beings, think, you know, plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, protists. So, so think about our earth. The earth's mm. got a 4.0 billion year history. Humans have been around for 0.01% of that earth's history. But now if you look around roads and houses and shops and cars and aeroplanes, coffee mugs, smartphones, all of the things that we use in daily life, that now weighs in, according to this new study published in Nature this week, at approximately 1.1 trillion metric tonnes. And that's equal to the combined dry weight of everything that lives on the planet, which is just extraordinary. So there's been this massive acceleration in the last 120 years. So if you go back to 1900, artificial objects that we made were about 3% of the world's being produced every single week is equivalent to the average body weight of all of the 7.7 billion people who live here. So if you Plastic. Plastic weighs twice as much as all of the Earth's animals, including marine animals. Um, all of the buildings and infrastructure outweighs every tree and shrub 
uh, on the planet. So, you know, the, the mass of what we make has been basically doubling every 20 years since 1900. About half of it is concrete. And then you've got to think about bricks and asphalt and metals and plastic. I mean, it's it's really quite sobering. So if the current trend holds in terms of the growth that we're looking at, then the mass of stuff made by us is going to be three times the world's biomass by 2040. It's only 20 years away. And, of course, it all becomes waste mm. that we have to work out how to deal with. Like we are basically just being subsumed by stuff we make, some of which has a decent long life, but hell of a lot of it doesn't. And part of the... So, so you know, I was just going to say part of the issue there I was going to ask you about the percentage of it that's concrete because materials like con- concrete actually the production puts a lot of CO two into the atmosphere as well. So the fact that half of it is concrete that's a really scary number. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to say I find that staggering because I would I would assume that you know the oceans like if you if you were to sort of try and weigh the mass of things like algae, zooza- mm. uh, sorry, um, zooplankton, phytoplankton, it would be enormous. So I'm staggered that the human um, construction actually, you know, human-made things outweighs everything living on Earth, including in the oceans, because if you sum up what's living in the oceans, it's, it's huge. So I find that staggering. Particularly when you consider that everything that around us that we've made, we've made from stuff on yes. Earth. Yeah. We've just converted something into a different thing. Yeah. We've converted into stuff that has potentially massive impacts for the future of the Earth's atmosphere and, and you know, the very survival of us. So, yeah, I read it and just kind of had a pretty heavy heart and thought, oh, my God, mm, what have yeah. we done? What trajectory are we on? Yeah, mm. uh, it's, it's, it's rough. It'd be, it'd be nice if we could tone that down and just start re- reusing or, or making materials that we could reuse more effectively. You know, concrete's not a good one for that. A lot of those materials, plastics aren't good for reuse. Some of them are, but not many of them are. So mm. a bad news story, Jen. So all of these arguments about whether we truly are in the Anthropocene, yeah. this which is dominated by humans, that seems a pretty fair argument that, yes, we are very much in the Anthropocene now. Yep, indeed. Dr. Ewan, what have you got for us? Yeah, well, look, as you would know on this show, it's always my job to have an uplifting environmental story. So Jen's <laughs> always rolling with the really negative stories. So I'm just going to roll with a really positive environmental story, sort of. Okay. Um, so Tassie Devils, um, as many might know, have suffered from this pretty horrendous um, transmissible uh, cancer, devil facial tumour disease. And there's only three uh, transmissible cancers that we know of in the world. One in- occurs in dogs. And there's another actually that occurs in clams in the ocean. Um, And this has decimated populations of devils. So they've declined from well over what's about 150,000 in the 90s um, to about 25,000 or so now is the estimate. And some local populations have declined by, you know, 90, 95% plus. So it's really hammered populations and it's led to a whole range of knock-on ecological effects, you know, including increases or decreases in other species, including things like feral cats and, and, and associated biodiversity problems with that. And there's a real fear that the devil was going to go extinct um, in Tasmania because of this um, transmissible cancer. But the good news is um, a recent study that came out in Science um, suggests that this cancer is being spread less. So, And there's a, a range of hypotheses for that. One is that because, of course, the population size of devils has been reduced, the way that this is normally transmitted is by devils biting each other, particularly when they're foraging um, around, you know, carrion and so forth. And the numbers have dropped, of course, and so there's less interaction between individuals. So that's one hypothesis. A second one is that this this uh, cancer is becoming um, less transmissible. So when we think about viruses, we often talk about virulence 
patients. And, you know, some viruses can be lethal um, and kill, you know, most individuals in a population, but often with time and natural selection, you actually see a decrease in that because as a parasite, it's actually a very bad strategy to kill all your hosts because then eventually you will go extinct as well. Um, and so, and the, the third hypothesis is that, and there's some evidence for this, that some devils are actually now acquiring immunity um, to this uh, cancer. Um, and there's been, one of the problems with devils is that they've had very low genetic diversity and that really sets them up for, you know, novel diseases to come into a population and really wreak havoc. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a positive story, I think, for devils that they may actually be acquiring some ability or some resistance to this cancer. And another really interesting part of this story, which appeared a few years ago, was that devil life history actually changed. So devils themselves were actually reproducing at an earlier age. So rather than sort of, you know, three years or so reproducing, they're often occurring around a year or so, which meant that they were able to reproduce before they got infected and died. And so I think it's just another really interesting example of how, you know, natural selection might play out. And I'm sure Shane will appreciate this, you know, the quote from um, uh, Jurassic Park, you know, life will find a way. Mm. It, it appears that with the devils, um, they are actually managing to respond in some way to this to this uh, cancer. So yeah. I think it's a good news story overall. It's a it's a fascinating uh, scenario too, Ewan, because we have this ARC population, which may yeah. not yeah. have some of those adaptations if they're yeah. re-released into the environment, which makes that all the more complicated. Yeah. And good good news, but also complicating yeah. the situation potentially. So, so they mentioned that in the article that actually um, supplementing <coughs> wild populations with captive individuals may actually be a bad idea mm. because that may actually lead to another boom yep. in the cancer because you have animals that have no resistance to it. So it may not be the good thing to do. Yeah, you may just have to release them somewhere else completely, you know, yeah. a, a different island perhaps. Yeah. Um, one, one nearby, yeah. <laughs> Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's Einstein and Go-Go time. And uh, believe it or not, this has only happened to us a couple of times this year, but our uh, guest doesn't seem to have virtually arrived. That's a funny way of putting it. So uh, thankfully, I've still got the amazing team on the line, uh, you and Chris KP and Dr. Jen. It's, believe it or not, Dr. Jen's the only one who is not back yet because she had to run down the corridor at Triple R, as opposed to uh, just sitting uh, wherever she was before, but uh, I gotta say, oh, I gotta say, Dr. Shane, that it's, uh, it's. Uh, I'm actually, I find this okay. Listeners won't really won't, won't appreciate this up until this point. It's actually great to to, ha to have this situation where we can sort of jump in um, where a guest would otherwise have been, because what people don't realise is that um, that when, in the virtual world, we basically sit at our computers twenty four seven, just waiting for something to do. And generally speaking, <laughs> it's only sort of once every couple of weeks we do anything. So. The chance to sort of slide down the emergency virtual no guest show fire pole uh, is a is a welcome opportunity. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I think I think in your case, Chris, that's definitely true. With the rest of the world, though, I suspect uh, <laughs> they're not just sitting well, there waiting not, on a Zoom call. They're not. <laughs> oh, I must have misunderstood the email. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Well, this is yeah. awkward. <laughs> poor Chris. Poor Chris has been on this Zoom call since I sent the email on Tuesday, and it's just got exciting oh. for him this morning because we're all suddenly. I here. can't wait to go and have a shower. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's okay, folks. Uh, the interesting Dr. Jen and I were just talking. One of the things we thought we'd have a, a quick chat about before our next guest comes online is just how science communication has played out this year with regards to COVID overall. And this is not something we've really pulled apart and examined, but it is interesting because with the, you know, uh, imminent rollout of vaccines, the way in which we communicate science is critically important. And so I'm interested in your reflections on some of the news that was put out a few days ago where 
only two people who were already anaphylactic to to a number of things and carried around EpiPens and so forth had reactions to the um, the vaccine from the UK. Now that's not overly surprising, but the uh, one of the original headlines that I I read was you know if you have allergies you won't be able to have the vaccine. And I thought if I was an anti-vaxxer and I saw that headline, I would just be cracking open a bo- bottle of bubbly and thinking they've done it again. They're helping me with my case, which is which is just total misinformation and really poorly you know distributed by news um, stories. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that, Ewan? Can, can I ask which media outlet did that? Because, I mean, I think, you know, there is, there's a whole gamut, right, of, mm. you know, media that I think do a reasonable job communicating science and there's others that will, as you say, like really find any little quirk and exploit it. And, you know, th- there's clearly a shared responsibility between scientists, um, the media and the public in terms of making sure that, you know, messages are communicated in a way that's honest and transparent. Because, yeah, as we know with vaccines, there's always little complications and nuance that we need to understand. But the overall message is this is a good thing and yeah. it's going to keep you healthy. So, yeah, to sort of play that up is um, extremely disappointing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And part of the problem there, as you know, is um, when these things start trending on Twitter... Oh things go to the top of that list. And so that was when yeah. I, where I saw a number of mm. uh, different organisations representing it that way. But, of course, if you, if you just click on that trend it, and you're not, in, you know, you're not knowledgeable enough of that area to know how far down the list to go before you get a real answer, yeah. um, you, you shouldn't have to go in with that pre-knowledge to be able to determine what's going on. And that's where it gets tricky. It doesn't mean you read it in a particular newspaper. It means you were just using you know, that tool that everyone utilises these days so well. I think one of the issues was that it just wasn't clear until, as you say, you read quite a lot what a tiny proportion of people were mm. talking about. These two people, this is obviously a really big deal and they're going to have their own way of telling the story now about their experience with a COVID vaccine and that's entirely fair enough. But two people out of how many to then come out with a headline saying with any that anyone with any allergy will have to give this vaccine a wide berth, that is pretty inaccurate reporting and very irresponsible. Yeah. I would I was going to say that if that if you're going to put that headline on that information, it, it's only because either you genuinely don't understand what's what's you know what's the core of your article, in which case maybe you should think twice about publishing, mm. or you do understand it and you're deliberately prepared to go clickbait rather than yeah. actually something that's yeah. accurate. But it also shows a remarkable lack of imagination. I mean, that could be a good news story. Yeah. Tiny proportion. Yeah. Yeah, you can still publish the news without it being negative and scary, and it could still be um, somewhat attractive. You know, with a cynical um, head on my shoulders, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to sell clicks. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I've said a lot, Chris, is exactly that, that sometimes science communication takes effort. It can all be done really well, but it does take work. Whereas the version yeah. we saw there takes no work. It's nah. it's the lowest common denominator version of things taking no work at all. And unfortunately, what I think a lot of people in that space aren't realizing is just what damage that can do. So if yeah. that means an extra 100,000 people don't take uh, the, the vaccine as a result of that story, I mean, you do the numbers on on the, yeah. the death rate for, for this particular virus of those 100,000 people, and you say, okay, how many people actually die? I mean, this is this is a, a not a, a difficult line to draw between someone putting out in, information that's inappropriate and, and deaths occurring. And I, I think back to my favourite example of the six seismologists in Italy 
when the Lakwala earthquake occurred. Mm. And they went to jail for manslaughter over the information that not even those six people actually, but the government representative, the seventh representative on that panel of experts put out to the media and that that guy actually said, hey, have a glass of red wine and relax, nothing to worry about, literally said that. And all seven of them went to jail for that. Now, you compare that to today with the sort of information that has been coming out in some cases around COVID, around don't need a mask. Even the latest one for me is the 1.5 meters. I mean, Uh, anyone who's looked at the particle dynamics and how far these things travel, you cannot openly say 1.5 meters is adequate. There's a study that just came out this week that I think said transmission within about six meters happened within, was it a minute? I can't remember. It was a very short number. So, you know, these sorts of things, you've got to be careful what information you put out when people make choices based on that information. I also reckon there's a, a, um, uh, we're in a different era now too, because we we know that forever in a day, people weight their their decisions on different things. And if someone, you know, that you trust, irrespective of their you know, their qualifications tells you something, you're going to give, put a lot of weight in it. Uh, and so when you put something into social media, the problem is that if someone you trust picks it up and reposts it or builds something upon it or makes a thread out of it, then suddenly now it's got a weighting that maybe it never deserved to have but it, now it has. So there's an extra layer of responsibility that you've got to have when you put something into the into the cybersphere, yeah. I think. I, th- I think for me, there's two things also that highlighted in all of that is, one is the counterfactual. So yes, there's a, there's a tiny risk that a small number of people will be adversely affected, but the flip side of that is, well, if you don't do this, a lot of people are going to be really sick and or die um, and have ongoing very serious health issues. The other one that always just keeps popping up over and over again is just the really poor understanding, I think, both in the media but also, uh, I would argue, generally in society, of risk. Mm. And and people just are still very, very poor at assessing what risk is actually is and how important it is. And you see it with things like shark attack too, right? That, mm. you know, one person gets attacked by a shark and all of a sudden it's all over the news and it's everything's going to hell because sharks are everywhere. And it's like, well, actually, it's still a tiny, 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 tiny risk in terms of the overall population. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the media and so forth could do a much better job of communicating what the actual risk is overall. And in this case, with these COVID vaccines, it's minimal. It's absolutely yeah. minimal. So, we- you know, it's just the, the argument that, you know, to, to go with that lead, as you said, is, is just incredibly irresponsible yeah. um, and promotes the, in, the completely wrong idea. And, so, and I think you and your, yeah. uh, just in the last minute before we have to go to our next uh, break, you, you're absolutely right about that around risk. And this is something myself and others like uh, Dr. Crystal have been banging on about for a while is this idea of you read a, a medical article in, you know, of any type and it says, you know, drinking coffee will increase your risk of Alzheimer's. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, by how much? Like, I, yeah. There might have been a statistical blip in your data, but if it's such an insignificant number that I just don't care about it because my chance of walking out into the traffic is much higher, exactly. Um, then, then I don't want to do this. And this is the one thing where I wish all science fields would follow some of the radiation dosing information mm. because it is really clear the comparative risk between getting a, a dental X-ray to getting a chest X-ray to getting a CT scan to taking an international flight to having a picnic out the front of Chernobyl. And you can look those numbers up and they give you relative values of risk and it's really clear. And you can sort of, most of us can say, look, I don't want to get two CT scans a year unless I'm really sick and they need to see where those broken bones are. You know, like I'm not going to do that. But we we promote that a lot with the way science is promoted in the media around risk and it's just to get things into, you know, into newspapers and so forth. And that's problematic yeah. because it changes our view of risk, which is, which is a, a rough thing. And I think 
just really quickly, the other thing with vaccines is there's personal risk and there's also community risk. Exactly. You know, you're not mm. yourself, you're making decisions about the whole community and that's why headlines like this are just so frustrating, deeply frustrating. Yeah, look, it's a real big problem. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the studio with me now is Associate Professor Joanne Fielding from the Department of Neuroscience at Monash's Central Clinical School. Joanne, you're working in an area which I find just fascinating. I only just learnt about this as a problem that humans have uh, probably about a year ago, if that. It's this idea of visual snow syndrome. Now, this is something that I, I I know a lot of people are aware of the various things, uh, visual um, parameters that people can get when they have migraines and so forth. But tell me, visual snow syndrome, describe that first, because it's something I suspect most people haven't come across. Yeah, sure. Although um, a lot of people with the syndrome actually do have migraine, about 50% of patients also have migraine, the snow itself is nothing like aura. Mm. It's, um, it's a persistent phenomena and it's um, 24-7, eyes closed, eyes open, and it's right the way across the visual field. It's sort of like flickering dots, a veil of flickering dots. And I guess for those of us who are old enough to remember, like the static of an analog television. television, yeah, that's, mm. that's the best um, description that I've ever heard of it. But it's not just visual snow. Um, alongside that, there are a sort of constellation of other visual syndrome, symptoms like um, palinopsia, for example, enhanced entoptic phenomena, so floaters and sort of the wiggly dots you see when you're looking up at the sky, um, they seem to be exaggerated in somebody with visual snow syndrome, um, photophobia, um, poor night vision, for example. And on top of that, you've got a whole range of non-sensory symptoms. So um, migraine, as I said, tinnitus, really common. Mm. Um, depersonalisation also is another commonly experienced phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, There's a range of sensory symptoms. Range of symptoms. Now, in terms of locking down what's going on, I mean, you said something there at the start that really tracks for me in terms of, I suppose, starting to help you work out what's going on, and that is you see this with your eyes opened or closed. So this isn't presumably then, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that doesn't mean anything between the cornea and the retina not involved. Is that is that correct? Right the way back to V1, actually, that, that the afferent system is unimpaired. They have normal acuity mm-hmm. all of the time. They're sent away from optometrists, ophthalmologists, and neuro-ophthalmologists with normal visual acuity, normal clinical MRI scans, nothing, nothing, nothing wrong, except that they say they experience all of these phenomena. Mm. Is this one of those syndromes that I suppose for many years, A, because of its rarity, and B, because it's damn impossible for a clinician to observe that I can imagine a lot of patients just wouldn't have been believed. Absolutely. And for a lot of people, the syndrome or the constellation of symptoms is it doesn't really impact their lives, but for others, it can be hugely debilitating. You know, lives are ruined. And this sort of constant searching for answers from doctor to doctor to doctor, being told, A, there's nothing wrong with B, that they're nuts. And that wasn't, that's not uncommon. It's only really in the last year or so that it's becoming known to the medical community. So now we have a diagnosis mm-hmm. and while well, we can't do anything about it, at least we can tell a patient that, okay, this is a, this is a syndrome, this is a neurological condition that you have. No, you're not nuts. 
Yep. Now, you've been working on determining whereabouts uh, in our neurological system this is coming from. Tell us about that process because it seems like once you get behind the eye, from my perspective, this gets real hard to work out where things are going on. Absolutely, it does. And we focused on the visual system um, simply because it's our dominant sensory system and the complaints are all visual or predominantly visual. So I have an ocular motor research lab. So I investigate sort of vision backwards, so the cortical control processes that are involved with vision, and those are involved in eye movements. So we took a look at that specific system and determined whether we could find um, anything that's happening within those higher cortical um, loops and processes that was different in these groups. Obviously, you can't see it. We're not able to measure it at the moment, but we can look at it behaviourally in a system that we really understand, Mm. you know. It's about half of the brain. So chances are we're going to find something and bingo, yes, we did. And they're not huge differences. They're not aberrant, so to speak, but we find that their um, their response times to visual stimuli are really shortened and they also make a lot more inhibitory errors. And it's sort of a constellation of it. It's very simplistic. This sort of constellation of symptoms, which is really only seen in visual snow. Mm. Now, is, is this a syndrome, I, I, I'm not sure if we know this, but is this something that we get in our youth or is it something like migraines that tend to come in more commonly when we're adults? Both. There's a, a great many patients that actually will tell you that they have always experienced it. It's their norm, it's, you know, whether that's from birth or a developmental problem. Of course, you can't tease that out. But a great many patients have always experienced it to the point of not understanding that it was abnormal until they've right. described it to somebody else who said, mm, hang on, I don't get that. Mm. But it's, there is a later onset and it tends to be in the 20s and 30s when it's, but that's, there's no normal here. It's quite variable. Yeah. Now, you mentioned tinnitus as another problem. I mean, this is something I experience from from time to time. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there who probably have that much more common. And, well, well, we know it's – sorry, I should say we know it's more common. I guess with visual snow syndrome, in many cases, we probably don't know that some people are suffering from it. But um, that, again, it seems like something to do with the auditory system, but – but clearly it's, you know, I know in my case it's related sometimes to what I perceive as stress. It seems it's a weird scenario. Absolutely. I mean, you're possibly with stress more conscious of your tinnitus rather than the tinnitus being any different than it was before right. you were stressed. But it's usually associated with hearing damage. Yep. And it's not uncommon for people like us to have tinnitus. Um, but this is quite different with visual snow. As I said, you can, children are, presumably born with it, mm. it seems to be a lot of, having said that, I have to clarify that, you can um, often develop visual snow and the symptoms of visual snow following um, psychedelic drug use, for example, hallucinogens will bring it on, but it's a different type of disorder. It's not like visual snow syndrome. There's a whole heap of symptoms that are quite different and distinct. So we're looking at those people, literally hundreds of them, who have had nothing that precedes onset right. of visual snow. Mm-hmm. Or nothing, like, nothing consistent or that they can report that is consistent. Yeah. Um, now that we have a, a somewhat better understanding of where the problem's occurring, I mean, what, what does that mean in terms of potential treatments or uh, you know any sort of alleviation for people with uh, – I'm assuming there's a grading of how bad this can be and for some people it's particularly bad and others it's less noticeable. Absolutely. And it's 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 um, different in terms of the intensity of the snow. People describe their snow quite differently. Some describe it in colour, some in black and white, some yep. of it it's, it's – it's quite dense and for others it's barely noticeable. Um, in terms of treatments, way too soon to determine that. Mm. You know, we, we've only started looking at this as a the whole world that are doing this in budget. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. we actually, you know, pinpoint it. We know it's not 
which is which is a good thing, of course. Yeah. Well, Joanne, look, it's been great talking to you about this, and I think, like many of these relatively rare conditions, um, we find that the funding for them is low. We obviously need a lot more funding into them, but what we also find is the impact on individuals can be really, really high. So I always think if we if we looked at our funding more from the point of view of that matrix analysis, where we look at you know not just incident but also impact and just how lifelong these sorts of things can be and how traumatic they can be we'd probably take a different approach to what we were funding in research but look keep up the good work this is this is fascinating stuff i know there's a few people down there at monash doing this and i think uh for those who have this this problem it it would be very heartening to hear that we're we're starting to make some progress at least in syria yeah so joanne thanks so much for chatting to us and, and good luck pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Folks, uh, that was Associate Professor Joanne Fielding from the Department of Neuroscience at Monash's Central Clinical School talking about visual snow syndrome, which is something I hadn't heard of um, until last year, but it is a very, very big problem for a lot of people. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. On the line now, we have Nicola Rivers from Monash University. Good morning, Nicola. How are you going? Hello, Dr. Shane. I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the, on the call, actually. I, I have to say, you are our last guest for 2020. Congratulations. I think oh, you're, wow. I want, I want to say you're number 216 or something like that, 217, something. Uh, there's been quite a few. So uh, you're the last one for the year. So if you see me suddenly relax partway through the interview and sort of drift off like I've forgotten something, um, that is why, because it's been a, a very, uh, it's been a long year. But uh, look, your, your stuff is really, interesting to me because, um, well, for two reasons, and I want to talk first about your research work around around native fish in Australia, because I think that's fascinating, but also um, your own personal struggles around um, dyslexia and what that's meant for, for you over the course of your, your education. So let's start off with the the fish scenario. Um, what What's happening in terms of our native fish? I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, poor river um, sort of water levels and so forth, but um, are we talking about inland or around the coastlines? Uh, is it mainly freshwater? Give us give us the goss on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I focus mostly on freshwater fish. Um, so I primarily work with rainbow fish, just mostly because we had to just pick a species to focus on for my PhD. But yep. the techniques that I'm working on can be broadly applied to other species with a little bit of uh, rejigging. Um, but the purpose of my PhD was that there was, you know, issues with um fish declining in the environment. Uh, I started in 2017 and then in 2018, 2019, that's when we had all the big fish kills mm. enter the news. Um, so that really kind of solidified it for me, how quickly things can change overnight and how desperate we need uh, things like assisted reproduction and biobanking to be able to be used uh, for the purposes of conserving our endangered fish species. Yeah. And when you say assisted reproduction, I mean, uh, you, you're not, you're not so that it's not an online dating program we're talking about here. I mean, what exactly does that mean for, you know, I assume things like rainbow trout now that, you know, our, our, our inland fish, I mean, what is assisted reproduction for, for a fish species? What I mainly look at is uh, the use of germ cell surrogacy. So in a lot of uh, assisted reproduction will focus on things like a sperm and an egg and bringing them together and producing embryos from an endangered species. Uh, usually using uh, frozen eggs and sperm. But in fish, we can't freeze the eggs. They're very difficult and challenging to freeze. So we can't have that frozen tissue in our biobanks. So what I focus on is the very, very early stages of those cell types. So um, primordial germ cells, very early stage cells that turn into sperm and eggs. 
Uh, and then my methods uh, are essentially to freeze those cell types and then try and turn them into sperm and eggs either using a surrogate fish or in vitro technologies. Right, wow. Uh, one of the things there you, you mentioned um, just, just got me thinking, you know, about how, how challenging some of this is because, you know, I'm really eager to be frozen at some stage myself when it gets to the point <laughs> where it's needed. And, but I know how many different cell types and so forth get destroyed and various things when we do that. In, in the terms of, uh, like, I haven't heard this before, though, around fish eggs. Why is it that the fish eggs um, are troubling to go through that process? Because we can do that with other species, right? I mean, we can freeze eggs quite readily yeah well i mean we've got human ivf people you know freeze their eggs all the time or humans do the problem with fish uh mainly relates to the size of eggs so you know you can you can see them with your eyes usually they're about a millimeter big or more you Mm -hmm. know think of caviar and that kind of stuff so it's very challenging when we freeze tissue what we want to do is um move water out of the tissues otherwise we'll get an ice um or ice formation during the process of freezing so to do that we use cryoprotectants but getting cryoprotectants into cells can be really challenging when they're very big also fish um you know they they lay their eggs out into water columns so they don't want to let cryoprotectants in and then also they have a huge amount of fat and lipid and that can prevent the success of cryoprotectants. So it's really just getting, you know, we, we can't protect the cells against any sort of ice formation, which means that they can be severely damaged during cryopreservation. Yeah, interesting. Now, when we're talking about these um, these sort of techniques you're using and so forth, one of the questions I always like when to ask when we're having these discussions is are we talking about sort of some sort of protective arc population that we store somewhere in a cold room in Switzerland or or are we talking about maintaining or in, even enhancing the current population? I mean, wh- where are you targeting the effort? So, I mean, you've got to start somewhere. And so I'm part of the management group for the Australian Frozen Zoo, which operates out of Monash University. So we have a storage facility where we're trying to collect uh, cells and tissues from endangered species to have sort of this protected, right. uh, you know, tank of tissue that we can use if anything goes wrong. Um, but ideally, what you also want to work towards is the protection of the environment to make sure species aren't going extinct, but then also using assisted reproduction to help boost those populations if they're getting close to becoming threatened or extinct as well. So you never really want it to be like the worst case scenario, we'll use this frozen tissue. You do want to be working alongside current efforts while the animals are still alive and in the environment to help support them. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds like a good combination of, um, of activities there. And, and boy, you know, we hope we don't get to that disaster stage where we're pulling them out of the freezer. Um, now, yeah. Nic- Nicola, you, you also, um, one of the things I think this is how we contacted uh, each other perhaps through Twitter, but you, you've gone through this space in your life where you've suffered from dyslexia as a, as a condition. And yet, you know, obviously, you know, you, you're in the, Partway through a PhD, you know, you're doing exceptionally well. Talk us through what that's um, been like for you. And I, and I suppose also just commenting on the fact that Kathy Foley has just been named Australia's new chief scientist. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that she has dyslexia as well, which is quite an astounding yeah. um, achievement for her. So, yeah, what's that been like? I mean, I, I was, um, I, I loved reading as a child. I don't remember ever not liking reading or being into academia or in my education, that kind of thing. But uh, my parents did start to notice that I had some interesting quirks when it came to reading new words, spelling new words, pronouncing new words. 
Um, and at the time we were living in Dubai and we had a friend who was a psychologist specialised in dyslexia and um, special education, which was a really good stroke of luck for me. Mm. So I was um, assessed and diagnosed as dyslexic when I was around nine to 10 years old and I entered a special sort of, um, I, I was very fortunate. The school that I was at was just a normal education primary school, but they actually had a dedicated dyslexia unit, which is really unique. Uh, for schools in general, um, although it has gotten much better over time. But so I, I was given a special program to help, um, I guess, train my brain to, to uh, be able to read words at a speed that is, you know, considered normal to help me keep up with my classmates. Uh, and by the time I returned to Australia, my teachers weren't able to detect that I was dyslexic. So I was quite lucky to have that early intervention uh, dyslexia isn't anything to do with intelligence or IQ. It's just an issue with processing words and language. Um, and if we get in early and, and help the brain correct that function, you are able to succeed. And people like Kathy uh, Foley being appointed to uh, the position of chief scientist in Australia is, of course, a very uh, beautiful example of that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really nice to see people like her out there doing well because uh, I think there's still a lot of stigma in Australia. Like when I came back to Australia, when I would say, oh, yeah, I'm dyslexic, people were like, can you read? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I can read. We're in the same English class. Like we're doing the same assignments. Like I'm performing either as well or slightly better than you. Like you can see my grades. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so like those sorts of comments, they kind of just stick with you a mm. little bit. Um, and, yeah, it's. It's interesting in Australia, I, I like to think things are getting a bit better. The Victorian government just um, set aside more funding to help dyslexic students in, in mainstream schools. Um, but, you know, still a lot needs to be done to help um, help our teachers identify people with dyslexia as well. Yeah, I think that identification is a really interesting part of it because uh, one other area which I think has been a fascinating transformation over decades is children who stutter and how we've, you know, really been so successful with speech pathologists in removing that problem, you know, by and large, for, for so many people. But it's very obvious, you know, it's something that it doesn't take more than 10 seconds for an individual to be able to see that someone has that problem. Whereas what you're talking about is a struggle that is often hidden as much as possible by many yeah. students, and that makes it very hard to assess. What what are the sort That's of, if, if there's a top one or two things that like parents and teachers should look for, do you know what, what they would be if, if they were just trying to determine if yeah. someone is dyslexic? Yeah, for me, um, I had a lot of issues with pronouncing new words or even words that I'd seen many times. So things like the word yacht, I mm -hmm. automatically say like, yash. like I just can't get, the words just don't translate to the right sound for me. So then I need to know to correct that. Mm. Um, Things like uh, swapping letters around, uh, I think writing backwards from an early age, although many children do do that. Um, but, yeah, things with or even just issues with reading speed or finding that children are getting frustrated and not picking up the reading. So even though they've gone through the same words over and over again, they're not able to process it correctly so they can get frustrated. Um, so any sort of frustrations around reading probably it's good to dig a little bit deeper on that. Like certainly I think, you know, it's predicted about one in five children have dyslexia. Wow. Um, but we lose, we've been missing a huge bunch of them because we might just say, oh, well, 
they're they're intelligent, but they're a bit lazy. They don't want to keep up. They don't want to do this. They're not interested in their education. That's why they're doing this. But in reality, even someone with mild dyslexia, if they've become frustrated with reading from a young age, it can really affect their self-esteem and that can be carried on throughout their whole education. So you can label someone who's highly intelligent, lazy, just simply because they got they, they have low self-esteem when it came to certain parts of their education from an early age. Yeah. Look, I think it's another example of how just how complex our neurological systems are. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, we were talking about visual snow syndrome with our previous guest just a few minutes ago and how rare that is and how difficult to, to determine when people have got it. And dyslexia, similarly, you know, is often hidden. But this idea, this old idea of, of what it means, and I think as, you know, as much as there's a bad news story around that, I think there's an incredible good news story around the fact that as you say, you know, with the right training and so forth, people can, you know, re- recover from this or I'm not even sure what the t- right term is there, you know, compensate for this, I suppose, is the right yeah, term yeah. Um, in, in a way that prevents them from having struggles in the future with their education and so forth. Well, look, Nicola, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. Good luck with that ongoing work with the fish in particular, because I think, um, you know, we all know we've seen, you know, it's been a lot more visual over the last few years with these mass dives and so forth. And the need for us to, to take some action there is, is really crucial. I hope, hope you guys are getting the funding you need and so forth. I know the answer to that is usually a no, but um, but good, good good luck good luck with that. And please keep you know keep promoting the stuff around dyslexia and so forth, so that parents and 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 educators can be more aware of what's going on there and just how they can help kids get the best out of their education. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you, Shane. <laughs> See, you. See you later. That was Nicola Rivers from Monash University, folks. Uh, we're almost out of time here, and we have to hand over to the team from Edit in just a moment. Uh, a reminder, though, that uh, I think both Edit and ourselves are not finishing up uh, this week. We still have shows uh, next week, and Edit, I think, well beyond that. Um, we are not going to sort of take as long a break over the summer as we normally would. We feel that uh, it would be very appropriate for us to keep supporting science and all the scientists around who've been doing such a tough job uh, this year, as many uh, affected industries have of course, but uh, we're going to hang around and do more. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere and uh, it's certainly in our faces this year a lot more than it has been in the past. We're going to have a great show next week. We'll be talking to the entire team actually and they're all going to be online with me and we'll be talking about our highlights and the things that have really stood out for us in science throughout the entire year. So until then, have a fantastic Sunday. Uh, Stay safe in Melbourne. We've done really well here. If you're anywhere else in the world, hope uh, things are going well for you as well and improving even if slightly so uh take care and chat again next week hi this is dr shane thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's einstein agogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via einstein agogo's twitter account or facebook page